You're listening to Citizen Reporter number 434 for the 31st of October 2012. And once again, we're preparing for the big journey, the Arab artists in a revolution journey that starts in only two days. And today I want to prepare for Lebanon. Now, after Tunisia, after Egypt, we will spend our last days of this journey in Beirut, speaking again with artists, the observers, the storytellers about the country and the long view of what's going on in the region and in the world. Today, I have a friend, Catherine Marr, who joins us here in Amsterdam, who I spoke with just a few days ago on a very admittedly windy day. Now, she's a Middle East and North Africa policy fellow for accessnow.org. She's someone who, who has visited Lebanon several times and clearly likes it very much. And the goal here is to understand the country a little better before we arrive there. So let's go. Let's speak with Catherine. Very first time I went to Lebanon was actually September 11th, 2002. And I remember the day because my parents had explicitly forbidden me as a student living in Cairo from going to Lebanon. So I just didn't tell them until I got back. And um, I went because I had friends who had recently been living in Egypt and had moved to Beirut to teach at a high school there and they said it would be interesting for me to come get to know the country and I thought yeah sure sure would be and so I got on a plane hmm. and I mean you as a student of, of the world and, and different countries in the Middle East you knew things about the country as you went in I did I didn't know much though I'd only been living in Egypt for about a year at that point and um and Lebanon, I was so busy sort of absorbing information about Cairo and Egypt that Lebanon and its geography and its history, I was familiar with the fact that it had this sort of history of conflict and um, an uncomfortable relationship with its neighbors, but I just didn't know much about it. And so I spent much of my first visit actually uh, learning and reading uh, and carrying books around with me as I, as I went and spending my spare time just trying to understand a little bit more about the country I was in. Yeah. I mean, here I am about to embark on a, a trip that's about not just art, but also the artists as observers of the time we live in, the times we've been through. Do you find that, as, as apparently you know, people have said to me, is Beirut is a place where you have to go if you want to learn about the story of the Middle East? I mean, not that there's just one story, I mean, but is that a place that needs to be part of such a journey that's about Arab art? Certainly for a journey that's about Arab art, no question in my mind. Um, but the whole concept of what is Arab art is so open to interpretation. I mean, people don't even agree on what is an Arab. So the idea of agreeing on how that then can be applied to some sort of category of art or culture or even within the arts themselves, Arab painting, Arab music, it's, it's a bit challenging. Um, but I do think that Lebanon is a really sort of singular country and a singular culture. And what one of the things that you have when you go there is that you 
are exposed to the full complexity of sort of the Ottoman Middle East in the sense of you have 17 different, you know, religious identities living in, in one nation of 4.5 million people. You have a nation that is has twice as many Lebanese outside it as it does in. So you, ha- you have this culture that was rooted in the Phoenician ports and sort of the... Um, and a trader culture that would travel around the region and, and pull from all of those di- these diverse experiences and influences into its own culture. And so, you know, there's something about Beirut being a port city. There's something about the history of, of movement within, within that particular geography that I think is it's a really important place to stop and, and understand sort of an alternate context for the region. I mean, the way you describe it, and then you're not the only one describing it that way. It, it seems like such a place that everyone should get to know. But I remember, I mean, growing up in the U.S., the story of Lebanon is, is always a, oh, I don't know. A story of conflict. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's the loud sort of description that, that drowns out the other. And rightly, uh, it's impossible to talk about... Lebanon without talking about its history of, of, of civil war. I mean, I think that that's actually, from my view as an outsider, it's one of the things that I hear often from Lebanese who are frustrated with the current state of affairs and political gridlock and everything else in Lebanon is that Lebanese themselves don't always talk about the war. Um, there has been a almost a physical act of forgetting within the city itself where the old souk, the downtown area that was so famous um, for its markets, for its warrens, for the richness and contact of cultures and, and identities and languages it was completely destroyed in the conflict and then bulldozed right after mm-hmm. um, and it turned into sort of a Disneyland of development. Um, so it's an it's a pes- it's an art it's an art it's an arsatz souk. It's an art. In fact, this, what they call the Beirut souks is actually just a giant open air luxury shopping mall. It's quite beautiful, but it's still a giant open-air luxury shopping mall and the old patterns of buildings which are uh, arranged around sort of a central circle and in an atoll pattern just like you would find in a sort of a French city is, which is very much the French Ottoman style of architecture are all rebuilt and lacking in sort of the con- the context and culture that, that once was there and so that to me is sort of the physical reminder of how how the culture itself has done its best to step away from the past by not engaging with it. And the way that sort of the, the country exists today is a patchwork of alliances and, and band-aids over wounds that are not necessarily healed. The politicians in power are the same politicians that were warlords during the Civil War. Um, they represent their tribes, not political identities or ideologies. Um, and so you have to, I mean, in order to understand sort of the country as it exists, you have to understand that context for why Beirut is Beirut, why Lebanon is Lebanon. Um, but it's very often, it's very often hard to, to learn it from the Lebanese themselves, I think is one of the biggest challenges because nobody nobody really wants to talk about it hmm. and rightly so it was incredibly traumatic and a huge percentage a huge number of people died and it, it the country was rent apart yeah I've been reading 
things that you've written here and there and your in your social network uh, uh, life and you have a love for Beirut I think uh, <laughs> it's a fair statement what is it that you love so much about Beirut and if it's a long list go for it <laughs> If you want to make a short list, feel free. Yeah. Vitality. No, there's a vitality to the city that's really just remarkable. Um, you mean young? Uh, <laughs> no, just, uh, you know, the city that never sleeps, right? Cairo is the city, Cairo is known within the region for never, never turning off the lights. If you want a pair of pants at two in the morning, we will find you someone who can make you a, make you a pair of pants, not just somewhere you can buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, Beirut has a different sensibility. Um, it's easy to say in simplistic ways that, you know, it's known as a party city or it's known as a city where people from across the region come to go out and have a good time and go to bars and, and all of that. And that's, that's true, but it's so much more than that. It's There's a culture of music and of arts and um, of the written word. Um, you know, the the... <laughs> There's an old saying that uh, Cairo writes, Beirut publishes, and Baghdad reads. That's the one. That's right? the one, and um, and I think that that's something that you really you feel that there is always, even though there's sort of a mercantile aspect to their produ- production of, of the arts, it is in, in I think that that's an appropriate characterization. Um, it's still a place where music is being produced and where film is being produced and where. Uh, writing is is a major part of sort of the the fabric of the, of the country where you have incredible poets and and essayists and you know it's known for its journalists and and so just this is something that informs the intellectual life of the city and I, and I'm referring to the intellectual life you know there are like every city it has its challenges and its problems but the thing that engages me and the thing that I just keep coming back to is that the Lebanese themselves have found so many ways to work within those problems and to adapt to them in ways that are creative and dynamic. And so, you know, you would never know from the surface that most areas in Beirut uh, lose power for four hours a day. There's insufficient electricity to power the country. And so even in the capital city, four hours a day, it's so much worse in the countryside, but four hours a day in Beirut, you know, the water is undrinkable, the traffic is snarled, but electricity, this fundamental thing that we think of as associated with a with a anywhere outside of just rural underdeveloped um, areas you, you don't have it you know the, the internet in Lebanon is the second slowest in the world oh no <laughs> <laughs> that is very useful to know no. so, and so you know there's all these sort of structural challenges I don't even necessarily get into the politics but there is a, a the everyday stuff the, yeah, yeah um, and there's just absolute gridlock in terms of the country's resources to fix them. And it's not that the resources aren't there, just they're not being allocated. And and yet the Lebanese find ways to live through it. And I think that that, and in, in some ways in living through it makes them creative, more creative, more um, ingenious in their ability their abilities and and ways of taking on sort of the challenges of life and I just think I, I'm very drawn to that hmm. I'm constantly impressed I mean I was there the other day and there was a the big thing was this pop-up restaurant just down the street in an old junkyard and I was like what 
where are we? Yeah, pop-up <laughs> restaurant sounds very Brooklyn or Amsterdam. I know, yeah. I know, it's, it's purely Lebanese. You know, there's Radio Beirut, which was a cafe slash bar that was set up to facilitate um, the production of independent music. And it's, you know, it's just such a purely Beiruti production. It's just something that would happen in Beirut. The people who paint the steps mm-hmm. go into neighborhoods and, and paint the, the steps that wind up the, the hills and myriads of different colors. That's that's Lebanon. Yeah, guerrilla art. Yeah, You've mentioned that a few times. I'm very looking forward to seeing that. Um, it strikes me that it also seems like a place where there are countries in the world that when things are tough economically, uh, in terms of peace, uh, people leave. I'm from one of those places, you know, people left because economically Portugal was, was in a terrible condition and, and people want it better. It seems like Lebanon has something, a different twist on that, where people may leave but they come back, people mm. may do a project in Lebanon, they'll do it somewhere else as well and then they'll come back. Boomerang um, society. Is that what that is? I mean, Maybe. I mean... People aren't in a hurry to leave. Well, no, they do. I mean, and there's there are waves of this conversation where you talk to Beirutis and Lebanese in general, and they say there's a reason, you know, the diaspora is twice the size outside right. the country <laughs> as it is inside, you know, the population inside the country. But the thing that I am always struck by is how many Lebanese you talk to, and they still just want to go home. Mm-hmm. You know, it is one of those countries where it has, even among second generation, third generation, people have very strong ties, large families, strong ties to the country, and so people who leave often come back and invest in the country in some way or another, whether it's intellectual capital or financial. Um, and and that, I think, enriches the culture of the place. I mean, I think that that is the exchange of ideas, the, the entre- sort of the entrepot of the, of, of the region, because there's so much transfer going on between you know, Paris and Austra- uh, Australia and, and the United States and Canada and you know, the rest of Europe. There's just constant sort of mixing it. I mean, trying to get a plane ticket in the summer to go to Beirut. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck. Because <laughs> everyone's going that. home. <laughs> yeah, I'm familiar with that situation in a, in a different context, yeah, the yeah. coming home in the summer. Um, there's something else that I can't avoid when I talk to some Lebanese, but also non-Lebanese familiar with the country. People always say, yeah, go now. Now's the time. It may not... And then comes up this sort of, it may not be there in the near future. Now, is this over-dramatic? I... I tend to think, you know, the countries we've got are going to be there. And, I mean, is this just something I'm going to hear a lot, or is that more of an outsider's view, this well, country may not be here? I mean, I, not to not to minimize sort of the, the, there are truths behind that, and, but it's more, you know, not, and not to minimize that, but every few years in Lebanon, you hear, oh, it's about time for a war. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, it's, the summer feels like we're going to have a war. And, and it is true that I think in in some ways there's a lot of concern right now about what's happening next door in Syria. Right. And with good reason. The history of Syria and Lebanon are, is deeply intertwined and has, are the relationships between the governments and the politicians and the, even just the families themselves. You have families on both sides of the border that are they're the same people. They just have different nationalities because of the way that Lebanon was drawn. It was drawn by the French as, a, as an enclave for the Christians of the region up in the mountains. Under French, under the French mandate. So, when the Brits and the French divided up the region, and the Brits got Iraq and Basra because they wanted the oil and the sea, and then the um, and the French got Lebanon and, and Syria, and then they gave sort of the Lebanese mountains uh, to 
to what they thought was a was a going to be primarily a Christian nation. And now demography has not bared that out um, for a variety of reasons, and it's perfectly normal. It never was a Christian nation. It was a nation of many, many different identities. Um, and so the conflict in Syria, because of these historical linkages, it, it scares a lot of people that, that they're going to slide back into contact, into conflict without, without wanting to. And that the country they know will not be a country or not as they know it now. That it will, it will be a country in conflict. I don't think anybody actually thinks Lebanon is going to go away. It's not going to rejoin Syria. It's not going to, you know, a greater Syria as the Syrians left. There's a joke in Syria that the, what's the best part of Syria? Ah, Beirut. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. So that's not actually going to happen. There's there's no way that that's going to happen. But I think that there's a sense of of that the center cannot hold. The the current political situation in Lebanon is untenable. The infrastructure is a disaster. I mean, there is a real sense that there's so there are fundamental problems here that must be addressed, but nobody knows how and nobody knows what the cost of ad- addressing those problems will be. And so, you know, you have a country that is outside of the city, you have this sort of entire southern half of the country the government has no sovereign control over. It's ruled by a militia. It's ruled by Hezbollah. So there's there's a question about what is the integrity of Lebanon. and It's a legitimate question, but I'm not sure that it will cease to... Ceasing to exist is different. It's just sort of what version will it take. Yeah. And so now is the time to... Well, and now is always the time. I say go once a year. Okay. <laughs> that's, that that's what I try to do. Yeah. Because you see the changes. Um, now is as much a time as any other. I think that now is a very interesting time. I actually you know, had a lot of conversations when I was in Beirut two weeks ago with people who were bemoaning the state of affairs. And I do think that, that the, the state of affairs is bad, no question. But there was a incredible sort of level of activity and activism among civil society that I had not seen in any comparative form over the course of the 10 years that I've been going there and 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 just sort of watching as a casual observer um, and I just I, you really got the sense that like the mobilization is there people in Lebanon are looking at the rest of the region and they're saying you know uh, things this is time for a change and 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 so in some ways, that, that change could be a very positive one. I, you know, I, I just think it's a very interesting time in the country's history with this concern about conflict overshadowing the region and this mobilization around sort of political reform. You've got elections coming up. It's just, it's an interesting time to be there. Yeah. I think it's interesting to give credit or, or at least count the amount of people that are doing call it positive, creative uh, work, because we so often we, we take stock of who's trying to break things apart or, or mess things up, which is significant and powerful, actually, but I'm kind of wondering about the power of what, what Of the creativity, observed. and yeah. I think that that's, worth, yeah. that's one of the things that I've been so excited about, is you see these, you know, I was mentioning, these collectives popping up, you see these artist troops, you see the Beirut street photographers, you, uh, you know, the, the people who do the paint-ups, the, um, the feminist collective like there are just there's so much energy and mobilization of creativity and positivity and i think that you know everyone i've talked to who's involved in that whether it be the hacker space or the tedx or you know, all these events or the pitch coaches they're concerned that this this might all collapse in in the face of sort of political strife but 
but just the fact that it exists right now to me speaks of of just a wealth of, of sort of intellectual capital resources and and energy in in a country that is that that actively sort of is working to combat through the use of arts and, and activism the existing status quo and I think that that's so much more interesting in, than just looking at who is doing what and what a political alliance is is where and you know talks of conflict and talks of gunfire in the streets to me the fact that people are actively trying to build a civil culture an artistic culture that, that's that's the really fascinating thing hmm. I was at this event in two weeks ago called Share Beirut and it was all about sort of digital culture and activism and the the big thing that I kept hearing from people is they never a they never thought that this could happen in Lebanon it was a series of talks from um, people doing local things and uh, local creatives from people from the region doing interesting things and from people from some people from overseas and at night there were bands and music and events and you know the, the in the venue itself there was a hacker space and there were um, sort of a museum of censorship and sort of dissidents and and you just had this incredible sense of 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 movement of of um, of energy I keep saying that but yeah. but and afterwards I was asking people why they they kept I was asking some friends and they said, you know, we just didn't think that this could happen here, but it's so good that it did. And I, I was asking, why is it so good? Why is it so important? And they said, because we needed to all get to know each other. We were all doing these things and we didn't know each other. And so, you know, there was this sort of perception effect that I, that we were alone and that it was a much harder struggle than it, than uh, as an individual. And I think that the reflection was by getting to all know each other that really strengthened the identity of a community and reinforced the fact that this is something that is valuable within within Beirut and within Lebanese, within Lebanon hmm. okay Kath <laughs> no thanks so much for really sure. sitting with me a little bit and, and we've got to spend the afternoon today which has been great because I, I, the focus for, for this journey has been so much on Tunisia and Egypt, but we also have a, a section to this journey, which is <laughs> Lebanon. Um, and it's not a story that's as popular, perhaps, in, in international press, but there's, as you've taught me and, and many have, have tried to teach me, there is much to be learned and much to be seen and something very significant going on besides that which we hear in the, in the mainstream about the political slash conflict. Um, which of course is also significant. Uh, so I will go and I'll try and use you know your wisdom and your observations as a sort of guide. Excellent. I wish you <laughs> the I'll, best of luck. Thanks. I'm I'll, envious. I'll let you know how it compares. Definitely. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. We set out to find something to hope. In seeking truth, the answer is the road. Seeking wisdom, the journey is your hope. Fight with the wind, fight with the rain. So there you have it, an afternoon spent speaking with Catherine about what there is to know, especially as a visitor for the first time to Lebanon, and as I'm trying to seek the stories of a country and of people in that country. It's nice to have this background information, I think, and I think it works both ways, on your side as well as my side. Obviously, the wind was a factor in that recording, and the only good news I can give you is, one, I think it was still quite understandable and enjoyable to hear her stories. I know it was for me. 
And also, thanks to the donations going towards this journey, there is a proper windscreen coming for my recorder, and it will be with me for the Arab artist's journey. So that's something also to look forward to. Now, if you want to follow this journey, besides right here on citizenreporter.org, you can also do it by following me on Twitter. I don't like to tweet a lot, but at the same time, I think many of you know I do tweet. And there will also be Radio Open Source. That's the name on Twitter to follow. That's Christopher Leiden's account. So just in case you're confused, uh, we're going together on this journey. So some podcasts will be on his program, Radio Open Source, and some will go on mine. Uh, so you can follow via my website, via Twitter. There are many ways to do it. I think at this point you know how, and I'm very glad that you make use of these tools. So the journey is two days away. It is very exciting. Uh, I don't even know what more to say about it, except uh, I'm so looking forward to it. And the cool part is to get to share it with you, just like I have so many journeys over the course of my adult life. So here comes another big one and I want to make definitely the most of this one let it be our best and well yeah enough out of me off I go I'll speak to you from who knows I think Tunisia I'll speak to you from Tunisia goodbye see ya see ya